we are human beings, and as such, we are created in the image of God. And as being human beings, his intention has always been that we live life in tandem with him, right? We look at creation. God made Adam and Eve, and there was at its core a relationship, okay? Sin caused that relationship to be broken. Jesus Christ restored it, okay? But we see that in the garden. We see it with Job. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it with Christ and the cross. We see it with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see it in the life of the church. We see it in eternity. This relationship and in tandem life with God himself, the creator of the universe. It amazes me that God wants that kind of relationship with us. But here's the thing. In this relationship, it's easy for us to try to live in this relationship in our own strength rather than the Lord's, right? We have this relationship with God, but yet we feel like we can do it on our own or we should do it on our own. And the relationship becomes religion, regulations, and ritual. It becomes burdensome rather than a blessing. And then, even with ministry or the things that God would have us do, we can try to do them in the flesh. You know, in Galatians, Paul says to them, Oh, foolish Galatians, have you what you began in the spirit, now you're going to try to accomplish in the flesh? You began your relationship with the Lord in the spirit, now you're trying to follow rules and regulations? Don't do that. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, he says, you know, you've done all this stuff. All these great things are happening, but I have this thing against you. You've left your first love. You're off doing things on your own and you've left me behind. And we can so easily do that. And when we try to do the things of God in our own strength, or when we try to do ministry in our own strength, there's a, a pattern that generally happens, okay, with ministry especially, all right? A move of God turns into a machine of man and becomes a monument to what God had done. And then it becomes a mausoleum of a dead move of God. And we see that in church history time and time again as people begin to take what God is doing and put their own things on it and control it, okay? It should just be God calling the shots. And that's what we're gonna see this morning. In Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six, we know it well. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths, right? However, too often we lean on our own understanding. We don't want to do that. And we're going to see that played out this morning. We are going to see people who try to do the things of God in their own power. It does not go well. We're going to see people try to have one foot in each camp, trying to live for God, but also live in the world. It does not go well. We are going to see the most dysfunctional, messed up, screwed up family I think the world has ever seen. And yet through all of it, God is faithful. God is powerful. God is committed. And God is using broken, messed up, confused people to further his goals and purposes and plans for humanity. And that's an encouragement for us because he's able to use all things together for the good, right? Even our failures, the Lord can use even those. So 
chapter 16 of Genesis. The promises come that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child and God is going to bless the world through them. All right? However, 10 years have passed since God made that promise to Abram. Have you ever had God promise you something and you're like, okay, it's been a week, it's been a month, it's been a year, it's been two years, I'm waiting. You ever been there? I have. It's like, come on, God, I mean, I'm not getting any younger here. And this was definitely the case with Abraham and Sarah. You know, we're, we're not getting anywhere with this. Ten years pass. Okay? So finally, this is what happens. Now, verse 1. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, maybe that I shall... Uh, I'm sorry... Uh, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, okay, we're 10 years out from that promise. Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, uh, her husband, as a wife. And it all went downhill after that. Uh, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt at her mistress. Okay, maybe God wants me to have kids through Hagar. Now, Egypt is a type of the world, a type of the flesh, okay, in, in scripture. So maybe God wants this to happen. What we'll see consistently here is when we try to do things in the flesh, our logic gets really screwed up, okay? We think really weird things, all right? And here's Sarai. Hey, maybe I'll have kids through her. No, honey, you're not going to have kids through her. She's going to have kids. You're not, okay? You can call it what you want, but this is not your child. And when Hagar became pregnant, she looked at Sarai with contempt. The flesh will always look at the spirit with contempt. It will always be a battle. It will always be a struggle. And so Sarai, being a godly woman, makes life a living hell for Hagar to where she just runs away. And God goes after her. I love that. She's not doing right, but then she doesn't have a lot of choice. She's just a slave, okay? Sarai and Abram, you know, facilitated this whole thing. So God chases after her, and she's weeping, and she's crying, and God finds her, okay? He knows exactly where she is. And he says, Hagar, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm going to turn your son into a great nation Go back, to, go back to your mistress, okay? I've got you covered. And she says of the Lord that he heard her and he saw her in her need. And she called the place Be'er Lahai Roy. In Hebrew, that's the well, because God met her at a well. The well of the God who sees. Even in our failures, even in our doing things in our own strength, God still sees, God still cares, and God's still there. And that is incredible to bear in mind. So, this goes down, and we have our first journey into the repercussions of trying to do God's work in our own flesh. So now, 13 years pass, chapter 17. 13 years more have gone by. Guess who hasn't had a kid yet? Sarah. Ishmael is now 13 years old. Abram is now 99, 98, okay? We're not getting anywhere here. But God is bringing Abram and Sarai to the place where there is nothing left but God. That's where we need to be in doing the things of the Lord 
and walking with the Lord in his strength and his ability, not our own. And so when he's 99 years old, verse one, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And oh, I'm sorry, fell on his face. And God said, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, father, but your name shall be called Abraham, father of nations or father of a multitude. Okay. I'm changing your name. This is what I'm going to do. He's reiterating the covenant. And then he says, all right, Abraham, this is what needs to happen. As a sign of this covenant, all males in your household, eight days old and upward, are going to be circumcised. We see throughout scripture that circumcision is a symbol of cutting away the flesh. This is going to be a spiritual journey, a spiritual work, a work of God, not a thing of the flesh. They've already tried doing it in the flesh and we've got problems. We've got Ishmael, okay? We've got this whole issue with Hagar. We don't want the flesh. We want to walk in the spirit. That's what the scriptures tell us. And so after saying, this is what you're going to do, he says, Abraham, your wife, Sarah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give her a son. And she's going to have a son. And I'm going to fulfill the promise through her. And Abraham's response is, he laughs. And he says to the Lord, you got to be kidding me. You know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm old. I can't have kids. I'm beyond, okay? 13 years ago, I could still father a child. Ain't happening now, okay? Sarah's never been able to. So we have no hope. So God, may it be that Ishmael lives before you. Let him be the child of promise. And God says, no. This is not going to be a work of the flesh. This is a work of God. Everyone will know this is God's hand. And we got to keep that in mind when it comes to walking with the Lord and serving the Lord. People need to know that it's God on the move, not anything we do. Okay, so time passes a little bit and God comes back. He's getting ready to judge Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 18. And he lays out what he's about to do. Okay, and judging Sodom and Gomorrah. But he also says, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. Okay, so you got God. Actually, you got the Lord, a Christophany, I believe, Jesus in the Old Testament, two angels. And where's Sarah? Oh, she's in the tent. Okay, I'm going to come back in about a year. And guess what? She's going to have a child. Sarah is listening at the tent door. She busts up laughing inside. Okay. And the Lord says, why is, that, uh, why is Sarah laughing? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, yeah, you did laugh. Now, can you imagine that, you know, this back and forth between her and God? I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. I did not. Yes, you did. You, did. you know, who are you trying to pull one over on God? You know, you laughed. Okay, this is the way it is. Boom, you're going to have a kid. Now, that's the end of it. Okay. And so, uh, but she, yeah, she's going, look, my husband's as good as dead. I'm barren. It ain't happening. Same thing that Abraham said. No, it's not in your power, but in God's at will. So we break away from this. Okay, we're not doing this in the flesh. It's going to be a work of God. But now we have the situation with Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Lot looked to the well-watered plains of the Jordan. Sodom and Gomorrah were horrible places, immoral places. And in looking there, not only did he go to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he pitched his tent first towards Sodom. Then he moves into Sodom and then he becomes a leader in Sodom. And he's at the place where he calls the people of Sodom, his brothers. So in second Peter, what we're told is that he's a righteous man. God's words, not mine. If it were me, I would not call him a righteous man. 
But then again, who am I to talk, right? You know, I've got my issues. So God sees him as a righteous man, but he's trying to live in two worlds. And he's taken on the mindset of Sodom. And so Abram, Abraham, you know, intercedes and says, hey, if there's, and he whittles it down and says, okay, if there's 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God says, yeah, I'll spare it. But there isn't. And the few that are there, he's going to get out. Okay. So the two angels go into Sodom. We know the story, right? The men of the city come out to gang rape the angels. All right. Lot is going, my brothers, don't do this. You know, it's, it's bad. I'll tell you what, let me give you my two virgin daughters. Okay. And you can do to them whatever you want. And I think of Lot going, see, I don't think he's a righteous man. Okay, I mean, what guy would do that? But that's what that culture did. That's what that mindset did. If you offer hospitality, you protected the person that you gave hospitality to, whatever it cost you. And he was willing to sacrifice his daughters to protect the angels. Fortunately, the angels blinded everybody and said, okay, it's time to get out of Dodge. It's time to go. And the two angels actually had to grab the two daughters and Lot and his wife and take them by the hand physically to drag them out of the city. They had become so attached to the world to the point that when the messengers of God say, this place is going to get wiped out, they're hesitant to go. And then what we see happen, if you go in chapter 19 down to verse 17, it says, and they brought them out, and one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, now here's that really twisted mindset when you're trying to compromise. Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant, if your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. And you go, they just took you out of danger. They're telling you to escape danger. You're just saying they saved your life. Why are they going to send you to a place where you're going to die? You know? And so the compromise comes. And Lot says, look, I'll tell you what, see that, that little town over there? Let, let me just, let us just go that far and we'll be okay. You know, it's, it's just a little town. I'm far enough away from Sodom and Gomorrah, but I'm also close to where my heart kind of is. That's what happens when we try to live in two worlds. It's hard to break away. And Lot and his family okay, I don't want to get wiped out, but I also don't want to drift too far from what is dear to me. I like the world. And so the angel says, fine, get to Zoar. Zoar means little. It's just a little compromise, okay? And as they're going, Lot's wife is hanging back. Lot's wife looks back, disobeys the angel, and she's turned to a pillar of salt. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 17. And he's talking about when he comes again, his second coming. And he says that one is going to be in the field, or two are going to be in the field, one is taken, one's left. Two are going to be in the house, one's taken, one's left. When you see these things happening, don't go back to your house. Don't go back to your things. You need to get out. Remember Lot's wife. Judgment came upon her because she was tied to the world. And when Jesus comes back, those who are tied to the world will face the judgment of God. We don't want to be anywhere near it. If we're believers, we won't be anywhere near it. But still, we have to have that mindset where we're focused to Jesus, not on the things of this life. And we know what happens from there. And they go to the hills, and now his two daughters right? Oh, there's no men left in the world. Really? Okay, Sodom and Gomorrah was no great place to find a guy anyway, okay? So it's gone. Don't worry about it. 
Zoar had dudes, but really do we want to deal with them? And there's a lot bigger world out there than just Zoar, okay? But they have this twisted mindset, there's nobody else in the entire world and we're going to die off. So let's go ahead and get dad drunk and we'll have sex with him and we'll have kids by him and we'll continue on the family. That's twisted. But see, that's what happens when we adopt and embrace the things of the world. And we try to live in both worlds. It warps out our thinking. We think like the world. We don't want to go there. As God told Abraham, there is no room for the flesh at all. They become pregnant and there are descendants from them that become problematic for the people of Israel from that time forward. It's a challenge. The things of the flesh always battle the things of the spirit. Going on into verse 20. Sarai, probably at this point, is pregnant. Okay? Sarah. And they go into the area of Abimelech, okay? And he's scared, Abraham's scared that Abimelech is going to see, you know, Sarah, who's now 90-ish, okay? And go, wow, she's awesome. I'm going to marry her, which he tries to do. And God says, you touch her, I kill you, okay? Because it's not going to be said that, well, you know, maybe... Isaac came from Abimelech. No, uh-uh. So God shut them down to where the women of, under Abimelech, they couldn't have kids. And so Abimelech's like, okay, get out of here. You know, I'll bless you, go away, you know. And so Abraham does. But the thing is, again, he's in the flesh. God's already said, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. He's already said, I'm going to bless you. He's already said, I'm with you. I'm your shield. I have an exceedingly great reward for you. And yet he's afraid. He's afraid that he's going to die. That's like me. God can say things to me and I've got it and I understand it. But I still wrestle with fear that maybe it's not going to turn out that way. You may not have ever had that. But it's, it's been a battleground for me. Can I really trust? So he tries to protect himself in the flesh, and it causes problems for people. Innocent people suffer because of his attempt to try to deal with things in the flesh. And so and they leave, and now Sarah has Isaac. And what happens is in verse or chapter 21, now Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah's 90, Isaac's born. The weaning process is over, they're celebrating, and Ishmael, now 15, is mocking what's going on. Again, the flesh and the spirit do not play well together. The flesh will always mock the spirit. The flesh will always mock the things of God. And so Sarah's like, get Hagar out of here. Get Ishmael out of here. He has no portion with my son. Oh boy, mom is angry now. And so we know what happens. Abraham's going and saying, oh man, what do I do and God says, listen to your wife. Go ahead and send him out. And I, this is one of those things where I just don't get Abraham. What does he give? Here's a jug of water and, a, and some bread. Nice knowing you. So what's up with that? But he sends her out with that and nothing else. And the Lord comes. She's ready. You know, I'm going to die my son Ishmael's going to die. And guess who shows up on the scene? God once again. He's right there. He knows. And I love that that's why he can say to Abraham, go ahead and listen to Sarai and let her go. Okay, we're going to separate the flesh from the promise. It's okay. Why? Because God had them covered. God was going to do more for Ishmael and for Hagar than Abraham could have ever done. 
God cared about them, even though there was the work of the flesh involved and not waiting on the Lord, God still cared about them and God still took care of them. And I think that is absolutely wonderful, the compassion of God. And so, chapter 22, good. Chapter 22, more time passes. Isaac is now a young man. And look at what the Lord says to him. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. We have no, no flesh involved here. You only have one, and it's Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. I would have delayed it personally, but he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, now listen to this, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Okay? Now, get this picture. I want you to offer your son Isaac as a burnt offering. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that such was the faith of Abraham. Notice there's no negotiation or anything. He's like, okay. He gets up early in the morning. Off we go. Wow. And Isaac's old enough to where he's yielding. Okay, there's no, he doesn't have to be beat up or anything by Abraham. He's submissive to his father. He's carrying the wood as Christ carried the cross of the sacrifice. And so they go and such is his faith. He says, I and the boy will come back. Hebrews tells us that he believed that God could raise him from the dead. And I thought about this, and it's like, wait a minute. Again, this is a burnt offering. So was he like, okay, well, maybe I'll plunge the knife, kill him, and then God will raise him from the dead? Or was it, I kill him and then offer him as a burnt offering, and out of the dust, or out of the ashes, God's... Whichever way it was, this guy was walking by faith. This guy was, like, totally sold out to the Lord. Why would God do this? Why would God ask this of him? And I think this is a reason. Is because when God blesses us, there is a tendency to put the blessing before the blessor. There is a tendency to put what God has given us above God himself. In the, in the law, we'll see this as we go through it. God tells Israel, when I take you into the place that I've promised you and I've blessed you, you are going to forget me. You are going to get comfortable and you're going to go after other idols. And so often we get into that place of blessing and comfort where we want to hold on to what God's given us rather than holding on to God. And we can't do that. And so God puts him in this place. Who's first, Abraham? Now God knew. But Abraham needed to know. Abraham needed to grow. And God puts him in this place. And we know, again, the story. Just before he plunges the knife, the Lord says, okay, stop. All right. And Abraham had already said when Isaac asked, where's the offering? Abraham says, God will provide for himself the offering of the sacrifice. Prophetically speaking of the time when God would offer the Lamb of God, his only begotten son. Okay? And God stays his hand. And God provides a ram in the thicket. They worship the Lord and they come back together. Okay? This is a picture of what God was going to do. On Mount Moriah is where Jesus was crucified where Almighty God, our great Father, sacrificed His beloved only begotten Son, 
only one son on Mount Moriah to pay for our sins and to redeem us back into fellowship with himself through the work of Christ on the cross. But it gets better than that. You want to hear the rest of the story? If anybody remembers Paul Harvey, okay? Now here's the rest of the story. Okay, so we know that part. Most of us are familiar with that being a picture of what God was going to do with, with Jesus. Chapter 23, Sarah dies. Chapter 24, it's time for Isaac to get a wife. Now, Eleazar is the servant of Abraham. He's the one that would have been the heir if God had not provided Isaac, okay? He's the one where he's talking to me. It's like, look, I don't have any offspring. I've just got Eleazar, my servant. You know, he's the heir. And now here's Eleazar helping facilitate a wedding for the heir, for Isaac. And so God tells him, or Abraham tells him, okay, go to the land of my people and go to my family's house and find a wife from there. So Eleazar goes out and he's like, wow, Lord, how do I do this? So he's praying and he's seeking God. And he says, all right, when I go and I sit down, okay, let's do this. God, if I say, can you give me a drink of water to, to a gal? And she says, sure, let me get you a drink of water. And let me water all your camels too. He had 10 camels. Okay, roughly for a real thirsty camel, they can take in in one shot 40 gallons. Okay, so we've got 400 gallons, right? And how big of a pitcher did she have? Two gallon? One big five gallon one? If she did, if it was a big five gallon, like an igloo cooler kind of thing. Rebecca was one buff lady. Okay, she's strong. But she probably had a couple of, couple of gallon pitcher or something like that. So she goes and makes all these trips and she provides water for all the camels. And Eliezer's like, God, is this you? Is this it? You know? And he goes, he meets the family and brother Laban and they ask Rebecca, are you willing to go with the man? And she says, yes. And Eleazar gives her gifts. The family too, but her especially. Now, think about Rebecca. She's seen some things that are from Abraham's household. She's heard about Isaac, but never met him. She's heard about Abraham, but never met him. And so in faith... She agrees to go and become the bride of a man she has never met and enter into a family she's never, in, I mean, in the grand scheme, she's part of the family, but a whole different family than what she's ever known, okay? A different land. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit's work in the church because the Father provides the bride for his son. And the Holy Spirit is the one who draws people to the Father and the Son. And the bride accepts the invitation by faith. I've never met Jesus personally before I was saved, okay? I've never had that interaction with him on a personal basis. I'd never met God, okay? But Believing the report given by the Holy Spirit, we accept the invitation to be the bride. And the Holy Spirit gives each one of us gifts and then takes us to be in the home and the household of the Father and the Son. Isn't that awesome? Wow. You know, so do we see that God has a plan here? Yeah, he just keeps moving along despite our failures and our screw-ups and fears and freak-outs. He's still there, moving along. But they can't have kids. <laughs> so now what? We have Rebecca and Isaac. They can't have kids. Good. Because when they do have kids, everybody knows it's God again. How long does it take before God 
allows them to have the twins. How many years? 20. Oh, my word. 20 years. Isaac, you're going to, through you, I'm going to provide a blessing to the world. In you, the, the world will be blessed. We can't have kids. Yeah, I know. Neither could your mom and dad. I got it. Okay? This is me, not you, not Rebecca. And so the time comes where she becomes pregnant. So in chapter 25, chapter 25, verse 20, uh, 23, God says, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So time comes, and they're born, and Esau's hungry. He comes in from the field, and he says, give me some of that red stew, lentil stew, okay? And Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Okay, what, I, if I'm going to die, I, and there's the drama, okay, the drama of the flesh. If I'm going to die, then what good is the birthright? Take the birthright. I swear it to you, it's yours. Okay, here's your stew. In the book of Hebrews, we understand that Jacob, despite his failures, has a heart for the spiritual things, a heart for the things of God. He's got a long way to go, but it's there. Esau did not. He despised his birthright, okay? It was not important to him. The birthright was ownership of the authority of the household and in this case also the priesthood of the household all right so Esau says I don't need it I want the stew boom so in chapter 27 the time comes where Jacob is going to bless Esau he's thinking he's about to die he's actually going to live many years later but he's blind and you know life is kind of coming toward the, the winter of his years And so he says to Esau, I want you to go out, hunt down some game, make me the food that I like, and then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the blessing of the firstborn. Now you think about this, since God's already spoken when they were younger, you think maybe Isaac knew that the younger was going to rule over the older? I I would probably think that they had that conversation. You know, Rebecca and Jacob and, you know, or at least Rebecca and Isaac. But that's speculation. Now, at this point, because Rebecca hears this, she could have said, hey, you know what? Uh Uh-uh. Remember what God said. He doesn't get the birthright. And Jacob could have come in and said, "Uh, Father, um, time out here real quick. Uh, He gave me the birthright. I'm, I'm the one with the right to this this lineage. It's me, not him. But they didn't do that. They went with deception. And they deceived Jacob. And uh, in so doing, we know what happened. Things fall apart. Uh, Esau's bent on killing him. And there's tension. And so it's time for Jacob to leave, okay, until Esau cools off. Again, Trying to do the things of God in the flesh always causes problems. Now, it's the opportunity for Jacob to get a dose of his own medicine and to begin to grow. So as he's going to his uncle's household, Laban, the Lord meets him. The Lord issues the covenant with him in chapter 28. He says... In verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it. That's the ladder, okay? And there are angels ascending and descending. We know that in John chapter 1, uh, Jesus is that letter, ladder. And it's, uh, God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall... Sp- Spread abroad 
to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. A little bit later, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I've got you, Jacob, and now the covenant that I made with your grandfather, Abraham, and I made with your father, Isaac, I am making with you now. So he goes to his father-in-law. He sees Rebecca or Rachel. Yeah, not Rebecca, Rachel, right? He sees Rachel. He falls in love. She falls in love with him. I'll work for you, Laban, for seven years to marry her. And he says, sure, that's awesome. Go for it. So for seven years, the Bible says it was just like a few days. And they were just all, you know, butterflies and rainbows and all that stuff. And they're all in love. And then Laban pulls a switch and brings Leah into the marriage chamber. And guess what happens? Now he's got Leah as his wife. So what does he do? Hey, you ripped me off. So Laban, being a good, loving father, not, says, I'll tell you what, you work for me another seven years, you can have the younger one too. We'll see why there was contempt from Leah and, 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 and uh, Rachel for their dad. Okay, Just treating them like nothing more than stuff. Now here's poor Leah. Seven years, he's focusing on on Rachel. She is unloved. She is sorrowful. She is hurting. So sad. And then again, we just got this whole thing going on with, with trying to do things in the flesh and deception and deceit. And God goes ahead and opens up Leah's womb. She has four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Rachel sees it. She's upset. I know what I'll do. I'll get my servant, have we heard this before, my servant, Bilhah, and give her to my husband as a wife, and she will bear children for me, okay? And so Dan and Naphtali come from this. But listen to what Rachel says in verse uh, uh, 10. She says, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. You didn't do squat, okay? You have not prevailed at all. Your sister has had four natural born children. You've had your servant have children. You have not prevailed in anything. But there's that warped idea again when we try to do things in the flesh. So now Leah goes, I'll tell you what, I'll get out Zilpah, my handmaiden. That didn't work out either. Two kids. Then God hears Leah's cry again. Two more sons and a daughter. And then God opens up Rachel's womb and Joseph is born. This is messed up. Bad. And we watch them war and fight over who gets to be with Jacob. And it's it's just screwed up. Okay. But God is going to make something out of this mess. And then the time comes where Jacob says, I got to get out of here. Laban says, I'll tell you what, you don't have anything. I'll hire you seven more years, whatever you want. Okay, let me just have the spotted, speckled, you know, black, brown uh, of the flock. You can have all the other stuff. And Laban says, great, cool, we're on it. And then he turns around and he tells his sons, okay, go into my flock, get every spotted, speckled, brown uh, modeled, and get them three days away from here so there's no chance they're going to mate with the better flock. What a mean dude. He's going to try to jip Jacob. Jacob's met his match as far as a deceiver's concerned, right? But God's with him. God blesses him. And Laban wants to really do some harm to him. So they pack up and they haul out, all right? Rachel, she believes she needs something you know, just say, you know, I deserve something from all this. She takes the household gods, the teraphim. Those are like title deeds to the land. Daddy never gave me anything. I got these if I need them. So all this deception, all this working in the flesh, 
going back, God says it's time to go. Jacob has Laban behind, Esau in front. He's between a rock and a hard place. So in this time, he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord meets him. And listen to what he says. This is 32, verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now he's relying on the Lord. I need you. I'm in a bad situation. Please meet me. And so then the Lord comes and has a wrestling match with him in the night. Right? And Jacob's not giving in. So God touches his hip and knocks it out of joint. And now he's a cripple. He's being broken. He's being humbled. And when he realizes that he's dealing with God, he starts hanging on for dear life. And he says, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. What's your name? Jacob, supplanter, usurper, deceiver. Now it's Israel, one who strives with God, or God strives, okay? You fought with God. You fought with man. You need to understand now, God fights for you. It's time to stop fighting. I've got you. I promised it. And so he goes over. Esau embraces him. They settle in the land. Esau has his descendants. And once they settle in, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And the family moves forward. And then we have Joseph. And he has dreams in chapter 37. The promise is coming of making a nation. It's going to take time. And Joseph has his first dream. His brother's sheaves are going to bow down to him. And they're not happy with that. You're not going to rule over us. Second dream, the sun and the moon and the, the 11 stars are going to bow down and worship Joseph. Revelation shows us that that is Israel, okay? There's the picture of the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. That's Israel. And through Israel would come Jesus, the Savior. Joseph, the name means increase. And under Joseph, there would be increase in the land of Egypt. And there would be increase for the people of Israel because now the family of Israel will become the nation of Israel. And God is going to do great things, but he's got to work in Joseph. There's some things that need to be done to prepare him for what lies ahead. So we see this as an ongoing thing. God has a time frame. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And as he uses us, He works in us and he prepares us for the things that he is doing. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your understanding. There's a lot of folks in here that did not understand what was going on. Abraham and Sarai, we can't have kids. I don't understand this. Hagar, Ishmael, what I do, I don't understand this. Joseph, I've been thrown into a pit and then sold by my brothers. I don't understand this. Isaac, 
and Rebecca, we can't have kids. I don't understand this. We got two kids and there's some real issues going on here. I don't get this. And on and on. Understand. The Lord has a plan and a purpose for each of us. And I'm not talking just ministry. Life in general. Our daily lives are supposed to be, like I said, in tandem with God. As he guides us and leads us day by day, step by step, be it in our families, in our employment, in our relationships, in our dreams, in ministry, whatever it may be, our entire lives are to be focused and rooted in Christ. And he will guide us into the things that he has for us. May we not try to do things in our own strength or our own wisdom or our own understanding. It is always safest and best just to say, yes, Lord, I don't understand, but I'm going with what you said because his way is best and he's always going to see us through. And never should we try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven because it does not work. Just as Lot was miserable in that situation. If you've ever been in that situation with yourself when you're trying to walk the fence, I think probably most of us have, it's not a fun place to be. Never turns out well. But understand in the midst of all of it, God is in control. God loves you. God cares. God is powerful. And he can take it all and use it together for your good. Amen. Amen.